Waldy and Bendy. Hello and welcome again to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they couldn't stop. I'm Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, Waldy to my friends, which is you of course, and my co-host is the world-famous art historian and television giant, Bendor Bendy Grosvenor. So how are you, Bendy? We're hanging on, Weldy. Thank you very much. How are you? Oh, I'm hanging on as well. And what else can you do under the great <laughs> lockdown? <laughs> now, late, later in the podcast, we'll be talking about things you can watch and listen to while everything's shut. Uh, we'll also be choosing some pictures we'd like to have on our walls. Uh, but first, it's birthday week on the podcast because uh, we're going to be talking about Leonardo da Vinci, who was born 568 years ago. Yes, I've worked it out on April the 15th. So it's his birthday week. Bendy, where do you stand on Leonardo? Well, I'm a fan. And actually, one of the things I've been uh, doing during the lockdown is reading all the art historical texts that I should have read years ago. So things like uh, Giorgio Vasari's Lives of the Artist. And I was reading uh, his entry on Leonardo just the other day. Uh, and I was struck by how, how laudatory it was um, I mean, I think Vasari thinks that Leonardo is the greatest artist who ever lived. I don't think I'm there. I'm a fan, but I don't think he's the greatest artist who ever lived. But I, I would make a distinction, I'd be very interested to get your view on this, that he is, I think, one of the greatest minds who ever lived. I make a distinction between that and his actual uh, artistic abilities. It's interesting. You know, Raphael used to be the great genius of the High Renaissance. So for 300 years after his death, he was the one that the go to guy when you when you thought about who was the great artist of the Renaissance. And then towards the end of the 19th century, it began to shift towards Leonardo. And what happened was that Leonardo, the scientist, got built into the equation. So although his pictures are, are rare and, and, and they're few and far between and a lot are unfinished, so artistically, it's quite hard to know where to pin Leonardo down. But then as all this other stuff came on board, so Leonardo, the scientist, and these wacky inventions of his, you know, he invented the helicopter, he invented the tank. <laughs> all that so they sort of enlarged his reputation to, to to fit the bill if you like so in a way he's very difficult to understand properly because there's so many types of Leonardo feeding in on the on the reputation yeah and uh, actually I think the fact that he was let's be honest more interested in science than art I think helps explain why we find his art acceptable today because although he painted a lot of religious pictures they're they're not deeply religious in a spiritual sense, at least for me. I mean, everybody uh, can imagine his Madonna of the Rocks. And almost one is distracted by, you know, the finesse of each type of identifiable flower and, and the geometric structure of the rocks. It doesn't necessarily strike us as, a, as an object of holy veneration. And I think for that reason, he's become an artist for our age because we, we, we place less emphasis on the, on the spiritual aspect of, of pictures like that. But you said that um, he's not, a, we appreciate him more as a scientist than an artist. But actually, the whole, the, the big show that's been on at the Louvre recently, um, they had this enormous fuss about their big Leonardo show. If you remember, Italy and France almost went to war over, over who was going to claim Leonardo on the, um, on the, on the anniversary of his death. Uh, but that show, what it tried to do, interestingly, because there's, there's always a Leonardo show on. You know, he, this is the thing about him that I find a little bit annoying. There yeah. are so many Leonardo exhibitions, this aspect of him or that aspect of him. But this particular show tried to return 
to the idea of Leonardo the artist. So what they kept pushing forward was that all the other stuff, it's the opposite of what you just said, actually, that all the science and all that, that was by the by, but what really counted was were the paintings. Now, this is not my view, this is the view of the curators of the show. And in fact, what was a bit irritating is they didn't really pull it off because they couldn't get all the good paintings to prove it. There's yeah. quite a few things missing there, which in fact, some of the pictures that were in the Great National Gallery show in 2012, which I think a much a superior exhibition by far, right. um, weren't, weren't in Paris. So, so there was this, you know, there's this, just this constant hunt for a new type of Leonardo to talk about. Everybody wants him in the paper every week, you know, the Mona Lisa's a man or it's a self-portrait or <laughs> that, 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 I find that very annoying. Yes, well, he's an artist for the for the age of uh, the conspiracy theory, isn't he? Um, I, I think for me, trying to mark him out as a great artist falls down when you have to accept that he was so experimental and so sort of bad at finishing things and bad at doing things by the book that when we think of his his great monumental works like The Last Supper and the Battle of Anghiari that is no longer in Florence, uh, we can't judge them because they've either entirely fallen off the wall or uh, two thirds have fallen off the wall. And, and call me a stick in the mud, but I think to be a great artist in the last 500 years of, of Western art history, you've got to get the basics right. You've got to be able to build, <laughs> create something that lasts. Uh, you've got to do at least one Sistine Chapel that is there for all mankind to go and gawp at centuries later. And Leonardo, um, either he couldn't be bothered um, or, or he couldn't pull it off. I think actually for me, one of the things that makes me admire him so much as a, as a person is uh, in a sense that he, he couldn't be bothered to make things last because I, I don't always get the sense he was painting for other people. He was, a, he was quite a private man. All, you know, all those inventions you mentioned in his notebooks, they're, they're just for him. They're just little jotting down and often in that sort of funny backwards mirror writing. So nobody was really meant to read them. And I don't think he was particularly bothered about people seeing his paintings. And that's why there's so many unfinished ones, of course. But the inventions, of course, the, the thing about them is they didn't work. I mean, you know, everybody goes on about, about Leonardo the genius, and of course he was clever, and of course these are fantastic investigations. But, I mean, he didn't invent the helicopter. You know, he, he, they're, they're close. They're, they're sort of ruminations upon science, but, I mean, they're not really finished works. There's a sort of genre of museum. I don't know if you've, if you've seen them in Europe. There's almost like every town yeah, seems every to have town, a, a Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci museum. They're filled usually with recreations of these wonky machines of his yes. and they're terrible places i mean they have nothing authentic about them at all they're yeah. just promulgating the, the fantasy um but I, i'll tell you what i'd like to talk to you about in your other guise as as a as a, as a former art dealer uh, the art dealer supreme what about the salvador mundi because this became a big issue last year um and, and it's indeed this year as well that the, the, the most expensive painting of all time 450 million dollars where, where do you stand on that and what's the story behind it well, the story behind it is is um, one of some frustration for me because it came it first surfaced at auction in New Orleans, famously bought by an art dealer in the United States for a thousand dollars, and it was it was the the greatest sleeper of all time. There's this idea that in every auction somewhere there's a a, a miscatalogued item which is asleep and you have to wake it up by spotting the attribution. And 2005 is when I started being an art dealer and trying to find <laughs> sleepers myself. So, it's it's the classic one that got away. Um, the art world is. The art market, at least, is is full of um, some very shady and questionable characters and not very nice people. But I'm pleased to say that the, the people who spotted the Salvatore Monday for $1,000, uh, Alex Parrish and Robert Simon, are two of the nicest guys you could hope to meet. Uh, they 
backed their hunch, saw it in the catalogue just from a photo, thought it looked Leonardo-esque, took a punt, and then over the years uh, found and proved that it was by Leonardo. Now, it's become a controversial attribution. Uh, I happen to think it is by Leonardo, um, and as far as I can make out, nearly all the Leonardo scholars think it's either by Leonardo or by Leonardo in part. So the attribution has sort of become slightly more controversial amongst those who, I'm not going to say don't know what they're talking about, but those who are perhaps less qualified to make a judgment. Now, into this, I invite you to give your opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Go back a little bit. The the very first time I saw this image at all, I had to do some I had a review or something about right about Leonardo for the Guardian, and you're talking about the 80s here. And I remember going to Vinci, the the place where he was born, and they had a little well, you can't call it a museum, it was like a little stone hut where he has supposedly grew up in this house of his. They turned it into you know one of those really wonky little museums that consist of some photocopies and, and yes. a couple of inscriptions and, and 20 fa- euros to get in. Exactly. It was one of those places. But what I remember, almost the only thing I remember about it was that on the door, stuck on the door, in a kind of plastic envelope, was a picture of the Salvador Mundi. And it was, I'd never sort of seen it before. And it was there as an image of a painting by Leonardo that had been lost. Uh-huh. So there was like, you know, a list of these sort of faded things, which had been had been burnt almost to, to whiteness by the Tuscan sun, you know, <laughs> and there was the, the Salvador Mundi. So it always kind of haunted me. And, I, and without very consciously thinking about it, um, I did wonder, where, where is this weird picture? So when, when the Salvador oh, so Mundi you thing missed happened, it too. well, no, I, I, <laughs> it, I knew that he'd done it. You know, yeah. because they'd done it on, they put it on the front of his house. So even 30 years ago, I knew, I know, I knew that he had done a Salvador Mundi. Right. So it was this question of a search for it. But I, I had, uh, I made a little film at the 2012 uh, show, the National Gallery show, and um, that was in it. The Salvador Mundi was was in the show. In fact, it was. Mm. This was the event that, as it were. Looked. proclaimed it to be yeah. genuine didn't they yeah i mean yeah. It, 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 because it was in that that everybody believed it um and looking back on it this film i made I, I can see that i was taken much taken by it i mean it does feel right to me i have to say i don't think it's a fake or anything like that but it always feels knew right. you were a good connoisseur Mally. no no it, it, it felt right i mean obviously it's battered and, and it's been broken up and, and redone but um yeah. I, I, I tend towards the yeah it's 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 in the right camp yeah and and I'll tell you what, the, the other thing about it that convinces me a bit is its strangeness. You know, Leonardo was capable of, of extraordinary strangeness. Yes. Do you know that painting in the Louvre of uh, the John the Baptist? Yeah. There's that weird expression on his face. Yes, what is he's it? been smoking it's... something very odd. <laughs> um, and everybody, that... people who decry the Salvatore Mundi went on about details like the orb and said, oh, well, the light doesn't go through in the right way if you hold a rock crystal up to the sun. But... That's not really what Leonardo was interested in. He wasn't necessarily trying to, in his paintings, get everything to be absolutely perfect. He did like, as you say, that weirdness, that otherworldliness, which, of course, is entirely appropriate for a depiction of Christ. Indeed it is, yes. Um, Just a final point. Uh, The picture we have of Leonardo, uh, there's been quite a few exhibitions at the Royal Collection, for example, the Queen's Gallery, where they've shown that rather beautiful portrait of him by his pupil, Meltzi. Um, and he's got this long hair and the beard, isn't he? Which is the classic image of Leonardo. He's the only artist who, who actually looks like God, isn't he? <laughs> yes. And I well, think this has had a big impact. I, I, I think if he looked like, I don't know, Charles Bronson or something, he would not have been taken for this overwhelming genius but the fact that he basically looks like god up on the sistine ceiling has helped him on the way i reckon 
is it has an artist drawings like Vasari grasped very early on to this idea that his supernatural talent was directly given by God. Of course, that slightly contradicts with Leonardo's approach to religion himself. I mean, uh, his sort of deathbed moment where he suddenly became religious again and, and, and took confession, apparently, for the first time in many years. Um, and of course, he, he seems to have been a homosexual, which in those days would not have been uh, accepted. Uh, and so Leonardo, we project onto him so many things that we want to feel, don't we? So uh, the fact that he does look a little bit Christ-like in our, in our imagination has helped his reputation. Well, I think it's really interesting, incidentally. I, went, I said earlier on about how I deemed him to be a modest artist. I think it's so interesting that there's no self-portrait. I mean, people think that that drawing in Turin is a portrait, a self-portrait, but it, it almost certainly isn't. And I, I rather like the idea that one of the greatest minds who ever lived was so unbothered about his own reputation in history that either he left most of his pictures unfinished or didn't even do a self-portrait, not even a doodle. I reckon he did one, but it was so badly put together out of such bad materials that it fell apart, like, like, <laughs> like some of his other work. <laughs> but um, he, he, we will all continue to dream on about Leonardo da Vinci. He's, he's the myth that no one will ever get to the bottom of. Uh, so uh, good luck to him. And it's his great birthday, the 15th of April. We celebrate Leonardo together on, Happy the, birthday, Leo. on, yes, on the great podcast. Uh, and as for us, we're going to move on to the next section of the show where we find out what you can do in the Great Lockdown. Isolation. So, isolation. Uh, I've been very busy this week, actually, Bendy. There, there is this enormous amount of things you can do online if you like art. Um, I've got a good thing to recommend, I think. But what about you? Oh, I've been exploring the Rijksmuseum online one of my favorite museums. Um, and they, there are lots of museums which have, are doing the virtual tours at the moment. And let's be honest, not all of them are particularly great. But the Rijksmuseum has uh, cracked it, I think, as in so many ways, they are the industry leaders. And they've done a great tour of their of what they call the Gallery of Honor, which is where they have all the, the great uh, Dutch Golden Age pictures from, from the 17th century, uh, at the end of which is Rembrandt's Night Watch. And you can guide yourself around it in extraordinary high resolution. Uh, you can click on individual pictures and you can either hear a little tinkle of music or you can have a short but very interesting um, sort of podcast description of what's going on. And you could just feast your eyes. There's Halses, there's Vermeers, there's Van Rysdales, and of course, uh, many Rembrandts. So I, I really enjoyed that. And I hope people can, other museums perhaps can go and see how it's done. I had a because uh, you sent it to me, so I had a, I had a good look. Uh, I I have I'm, I'm in awe of the Rijksmuseum. They've got so much right, I think, in terms of their online presence mm. and being open to stuff on on the on the internet, and um, they, they they just get get it right. You know, they seem to have always been ahead of the game when it comes to the availability of technology in museums. Yeah. Now, in fact, one day let, you and I should do a top five or bottom five of the <laughs> best and worst art museums. Are, on, online because it is incredibly variable the the things that you get offered but yes the rights museum is great and this was good fun I, I, it took me a little bit to crack it to be honest um I, I didn't quite know which arrow to point at and i didn't quite know how to get to the pictures and i'm you know as a numbskull on the internet <laughs> I, i'm i'm a classic example of someone who isn't necessarily at ease in these circumstances but uh yes it was it was very interesting although 
<laughs> I found some of the little filmettes about the paintings quite amusing. I mean, there, there's one about Vermeer's milkmaid, which starts with the sound of gurgling milk. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yes. Um, no, definitely. And the, the, the Night Watch bit is good, isn't it? It is good. And, I, and, and again, top marks for transparency and, and online presence. The, the fact that they are documenting in such detail their restoration of it. And they're doing the restoration in the gallery so that the public can see. One of the things that struck me about the the virtual toilet, which I'd never really appreciated properly standing in the place in that gallery of honor in person, is that the, the online tour starts with the, the space entirely empty, of course, which is one of the benefits of these of these lockdown tours. Um, there's no people in the way. Uh, but it suddenly struck me how much that is a cathedral. The, the architecture is very clearly a religious space, isn't it? Um, and the, the night watch is, is the altarpiece. And it's it's rather ironic in a sense because within that space there are no religious pictures uh, or, or hardly any as far as I could see because uh, Dutch art in that in that middle period of the 17th century was was not at all interested in religious art uh, Holland being um, a, a place of the Reformation and so on um, and, and I thought in a way that helps explain why we said at the beginning the Rijksmuseum is so good at this because the, the Dutch have been proclaiming with almost religious fanaticism that they're sort of the soft power of their high culture, haven't they? That's that's their their launch pad into the world. I mean, do you remember when Obama went to, to the Netherlands a few years ago and they they plonked him in front of the Night Watch for a rather strange photo call? But it's I love the fact that that art lovers have in in the Netherlands a country which proclaims its art, its high art, so so grandly, and the fact that the Night Watch is their big Ben. It's true, yes, but uh, I, do you know what? Uh, I think there's more religion there than perhaps you're you're allowing for there. Uh, there a lot, one of the things I really like about Dutch Golden Age art is that it has a lot of hidden religious meanings, or perhaps religious isn't quite the right word, moralistic. So, for example, yeah. when you see a still life, when you know, there's one there um, by by Van Duck, isn't there? Uh, or about, is that how you pronounce? Van, he's written Van Duck, but he's not an artist I, I often mention, so I'm not sure how to pronounce him. <laughs> but let's say it's Van Duck, and it's a beautiful little scene with an apple, one of those plates on the edge of the table, and um, uh, apple peel kind of rolling over the edge of the plate. And we all know that in these Dutch still lives, you know, the, the food has this religious meaning because they're all about how we live in a world of plenty, but at any moment now, that could finish because earthly pleasures are temporary. Only religious and divine pleasures are eternal. So that a lot of that Dutch still life painting has this hidden message. And, you know, further along in that great room, you've got the beautiful, that marvellous Rembrandt of the Jewish bride, or so-called Jewish bride, which is this vision of tenderness between a man and a woman, and presumably a man and his wife. But they're dressed up as, as characters like the Bible, aren't they? I mean, they're meant to be, is it Isaac and Rebecca, or uh, some biblical pairing that, that Rembrandt would have, would have known and celebrated. So although there isn't this ostentatious Italian religion there, you know, you haven't mm. got great big Jesuses popping up all over the place. It's there in a subtle Protestant way, yes. uh, but it's still there. It's still there. And I personally respond to that and like it. Yes, yes, I see what you mean. Because I'm uh, such a glutton, when I see a lovely still life like that Van Duck, I, I do, my first reaction is, oh, that's a lovely piece of cheese. <laughs> well, and beautifully painted cheese as well. You can taste it, can't you? <laughs> Oh, that Gouda. Ooh. Uh, I've, I, I'll tell you what I've been looking at, right? Um, which is in a similar vein, 
I was one of the lucky ones who managed to go and see this extraordinarily good Van Eyck exhibition that's uh, opened in, in Ghent, at the museum in Ghent, which has had to close early. Uh, but rather splendidly, they've got the curator in, or one of the curators in, a gentleman who rejoices by the name of Till Holger Burkert, mm. and he has presided over a, a tour of the event for us, and I thought did it really well. Now, most curators are a bit too dry for me. They're not particularly um, insightful, and the way they talk tends to sort of murder a work of art with, it, with their earnestness. <laughs> Uh, but I don't think this guy was like that. Did, did you manage to catch it? This this tour of the Van Eyck show with him. I thought it was brilliant, and I I met him a few times. I'm a great fan of his. Oh, uh, I, I didn't know him. I, I like I rather like his waistline because he makes me feel even thinner, a little bit thinner, which is heartening. But uh, he's a sort of jolly but incredibly informative presence. Yeah, and he's a really nice. Nice. It's a lovely fifteen or twenty minutes to spend in, in lockdown company with. I agree, and, and it, but it does also give you a, such a good idea of the show. I mean, you haven't seen it, have you? But I bet Afraid you felt not. as if you had, right? Yeah, yeah, I had. And um, in contrast to what we were discussing last week about that little Tate video, it was the film was um, cut with lovely shots of the paintings, really close up and and good sense of the space of the exhibition. It was it was top notch. Mm. Of course, everything we're talking about here, listeners, you can you can look up on these Sunday Times pages. We'll give you all the links. It's all there. All that important information um but the van eyck film what it does is uh, so we've got this this large chunky father christmas of a curator who shows us around uh, and because he's i think he's a he's actually the, one of the um uh, directors of the bruges museum um, he's incredibly informed on on van eyck so he comes up with these nuggets of brilliant insight i mean i saw the show i loved it i did my own little film on it but i missed i, I can see now i missed so much so this is all about the ghent altarpiece this is the kind of focus of the whole thing one of the greatest paintings most important paintings ever made basically where the use of oil paint suddenly becomes this radically different thing where you can show illusionistic stuff and really convey textures and the feel of things and all that is all done with oil paints and van eyck is the first great master of it or they used to say he invented it that's not true but he was the he was the first great master but but the things that he conveyed which are pointed out to you in this video astonishing there's there's a you know grisaille is is when people try and paint in in gray to make things yes. look like statues so it's yes. basically black and white sort of color painting. There are these two St. John's, different St. John's from the Bible, in standing in niches, grisaille niches. And as the guy points out to you in the film, so well painted is it, mm. you can tell they're carved from different stone. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. both white, pale stone, but it's actually a different type from a different quarry. I mean, you know, that's just astonishing. Why would Van Eyck bother to <laughs> indicate that? Yes, and as the as Till Holter points out, that a lot of these pictures were going to be placed 10, 15 feet up on a wall where nobody could really hope to to make the difference, discern the difference themselves. But that's one of the triumphs of the restoration of the painting, is you can see all these details now for the first time for centuries. It's breathtaking. Uh, so yes, I thoroughly recommend that little tour of the Van Eyck exhibition. Um, and of course, what it does is it, it fires in, in us this desire to look at yet more art. Um, and fortunately for us, we've got something coming up next, which is on the wall, where Bendor and I fantasize about what we could have on our walls during the great lockdown. So here we go with that big dream sequence. <laughs> 
On the wall. Right, here we are under lockdown. We can look at things on our walls that normally wouldn't be there, but because they're imaginary and because we can have anything we want on our wall on this podcast, we get to choose some of the best masterpieces we can think of. And Bendy, what have you what have you selected to go on your imaginary wall this week? Oh, I'm continuing the birthday theme since it was Leonardo's birthday this week. It was also Sir Thomas Lawrence's birthday this week, and he's my favourite British artist. So I've gone for what I think is probably his greatest work, his portrait of Pope Pius VII, which is in the Royal Collection at Windsor Castle. And uh, I'm sure the Queen wouldn't mind sharing it for the moment, since the castle is under lockdown. Uh, what is it about artists painting popes and cardinals? There's something about all that, that lovely red and crispy, silky drapery. They, they absolutely love doing it, don't they? And Lawrence's portrait of Pope uh, Pius VII is a feast of texture. You want to reach in and crinkle all that silk and satin. Uh, it was painted in 1819 when Lawrence was sent around Europe on his great commission from uh, the Prince Regent, later George IV, to, to paint everybody who had played a role in defeating uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. And there's this great uh, Waterloo chamber at Windsor Castle. And this is one of the stars of the show. Um, it's, it's painted as quite brilliantly. And Thomas Lawrence was, uh, one of the reasons he's my favourite British artist is that he, he was a, a child prodigy and he could handle oil paint almost as easily as you and I breathe. And anyone who's been to the National Gallery will have seen his portrait, full-length portrait of Queen Charlotte, which is hanging in that central rotunda. And the extraordinary thing is he painted that when he was 20. And Lawrence, he never had any tuition. He just, he just emerged, a bit like Mozart. He was uh, self-taught, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, he could just paint. And it's just amazing. Uh, and this painting, I think, is, is the high point of his, his ability to wield a brush. Uh, and it's also got rather a charming story. The Pope himself is, is looking a little bit sheepish because he actually crowned Napoleon as emperor in 1804 before he uh, was forced to change sides. Uh, this painting encapsulates for me, I think, the only moment where a British artist takes on the great Italian masters and wins uh, because Lawrence goes to Rome to paint this portrait uh, and he's called Il Tiziano Inglesi. And you can see that there, it's in the great tradition of, you know, Raphael's portrait of Julius II and Titian's portrait of Paul III. And here's Lawrence's portrait of Pope Pius VII. And it's the only time a British artist can pull that off. And hurrah for Sir Thomas and happy birthday to you. I have to say, it's very good. Um, I, 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 I can walk past Lawrence without too much of a flutter normally, but uh, I, I agree with you. This is this is his masterpiece, isn't it? Um, I mean, it's big thing, isn't it? Uh, for part of anything else, it's a massive, great painting. It's a full length, which most of the popes in Renaissance art you only get to see half of them. So, like the famous Raphael of Julius II is sort of from the knees up and even Velasquez the great innocent the 10th I mean that's not not full length so there's a sort of bigness to this and I'm actually intrigued I mean I, I do love his sheepish expression this rather non-papal expression there's a sort of rather sheepish humanity popping out that's good fun but I also like the background because um, I happen to know that that's a couple of my favorite things from the Vatican museums are in there um, so there's the Laocoon which was that fabulous Greco-Roman sculpture that was discovered in Rome in 1506, which changed art, this, these figures wrestling with a giant snake 
That's in the background there. And that's in the Vatican Museum now. You can still see it. Um, and then there's the Apollo Belvedere, isn't there? With a sort of prancing in like, a, like Nureyev in a ballet. That's there as well. And I, 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 I read somewhere that, that Canova was putting all these together in, into some sort of display for the, for the Pope at the time. There's like a separate section going up of all the classical sculpture. So there's lots to look at in here. It isn't just the great portrait. It's got this great narrative of the, the sculptures, classical sculptures from the Vatican at the back. Yes, and those are there as a testament to Napoleon's defeat because, of course, he half-inched them and took them all from the Vatican back to, to Paris. And so it's a, a moment of triumph for the Pope to have those back in his picture. Of course, there's a lovely touch for Lawrence himself there because, as a kid, he was never allowed to go on his grand tour. His dad wouldn't let him as an artistic part of his training. And he had engravings and casts of those statues himself, which he studied from, but he never got to see them. So when he paints his masterpiece, there he is standing in front of them. He gets to see them for the first time. How interesting. He surpasses himself in this. I think I think mm. we can all agree on that. But I've gone for something a little bit more domestic. Um, I thought we should get some women artists onto this show. And, I, and I've chosen somebody who I, I knew absolutely nothing about until I went to Antwerp a couple of years ago. And I, and I was going through the Antwerp Museum, the Museum of Fine Arts there. And at the top of the stairs was this picture. And I looked at it and I thought, wow, that's brilliant. Who is that? Um, and it's two girls. Um, and one of them was wearing this yellow, this intense yellow cloak that just blared out and seemed so un-Flemish. So I, I thought, hey, this is a Baroque Flemish painting. It's 1640, 50 or something. But it's not Jordan's. It's not any of the artists I know. Who is it? And it turned out to be this artist called Michaelina Vautier pardon the, the pronunciation, I'm sure I've got that wrong. But she's an artist who has, as so often happens, forgotten for a law, an awfully long time, for several centuries, and has only really been rediscovered in the past 20 years or so. So there is this woman artist at work in, in Brussels, in, in at the height of, of the Flemish Golden Age, um, producing these extraordinary pictures. And this is, I think, one of, one of her masterpieces. And it shows two little girls, I suspect they're sisters, probably in real life, but they're sort of standing there, one's looking down, the other's looking away, and, and they're meant to represent two saints, two martyrs, famous martyrs, uh, Catholic martyrs. One is Saint Agnes and the other Saint Dorothy. So they're dressed up, if you like, in, in that Flemish manner, which you've seen so often, as characters from the, the great myths of the female martyrs, and cleverly we know who they are because of the symbolism, as always. So St. Agnes, who's the one in this gorgeous yellow dress robe, um, she's holding or she's patting a lamb on the head. And the lamb is her attribute because Agnes and Agnus, which is the Latin for lamb, are similar words. So for no other reason than it's a kind of pun on the word, she, the, the lamb became her symbol. And she was um, a martyr, a Christian martyr, who got murdered in the era of Diocletian. They threw her in a brothel, but everyone who tried to rape her went blind. You know, there's all those stories about her. So she became, if you like, a sort of patron saint of chastity. And the other girl, Saint Dorothy, similar story, another Christian martyr. They tried to kill her, eventually they beheaded her. But when she gave her headdress to the lawyer who was um, arguing against her for, for the, on the Roman side, it smelt of roses and fruit, beautiful fruit. So her attributes are roses and fruit, and those are on the table in front of her. 
So there's this lovely storyline, which is basically told merely through the symbolism. So that's all interesting. But the way the painting is put together, and above all, that brave, exotic, startling use of yellow, proclaim Michaelina Voltier to be, in my view, a genuinely important artist who we should mm -hmm. never have overlooked. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a tragic reflection on the state of women in art history for the last few centuries that she, as you say, had completely disappeared. Of course, as she wasn't allowed to register in all the guilds, uh, her name was not written down. Um, and the, there was an exhibition of her recently at the Rubens House in Antwerp, which was put together by uh, an art historian I've met a few times called Catalina van der Stiegelen. And now I flatter myself that occasionally, every now and then, I do something good for art history by discovering a lost painting. But the really important work is when art historians discover lost artists. And I think in Catalina van der Stiegelen, in discovering and putting together a whole oeuvre for Michelin Wautier, um, despite the fact that she hardly ever appears in the documents, is one of the great feats of uh, modern art historical scholarship. Well, that's a good point to finish on. Uh, everybody should go and look at these pictures. They're all be online on our little website on the Sunday Times. That's all from us. Uh, we're back to the great lockdown. We'll be here next week again, I hope. So it's goodbye from me, and I believe it'll be goodbye from Bendy. Cheerio. See you soon. Waldy and Bendy.